0: There was actually a recent New York Times book called Far From the Tree. Um, I'm blanking on the author, but each chapter deals with a different kind of um, child that is so um, divergent from the parents' own lived experience and from their expectations that it's almost like you have to parent this, this alien. You know, one of them might be autistic. Another one is children who are criminals. Um... Deafness, etc. And one of the ch- chapters is prodigies, and not just, you know, math or science, but they specifically focus on musical prodigies. It's funny because I personally know almost everybody in the chapter.
1: Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. My name is Joe McHugh, and I want to share with you a conversation I had in February of 2016 with the gifted violinist Rachel Barton Pine. Ms. Pine was performing in Portland, Oregon, and the good people at radio station KQAC, All Classical Portland, provided us with a studio where we could talk. This, then, is part one of that interview. I first encountered
0: the violin when I was three years old, I saw some middle school age girls playing violin at my church, and they had on the most beautiful long dresses, but I was also very intrigued by the sound of the violin. And, well, let's put it this way, my parents don't agree on much, but they agreed on this. Uh, they both tell the same story, so it must be true, which is that I stood up in the pew and I pointed and I said, I want to do that. And, you know, my parents were skeptical at first because neither of them played an instrument. My mom sang in the church choir, but, um, you know, they didn't really think You know, a three-year-old playing the violin was necessarily the thing, but it's not too uncommon, and there was luckily a teacher in the neighborhood just a few blocks away who was offering lessons, and some of the other kids on our block were taking lessons. And so my parents decided to let me give it a try, and I fell in love with it right away. By the time I was five years old, I was actually signing my school papers, Rachel Violinist. I really thought of myself not as someone who plays the violin, but as a violinist. Like, that was at the core of my identity. That was who I was. And growing up in church, I really came to think of the violin as my calling at about that age, age five. Um, My church, um, St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Chicago, has a big music ministry um, centered around classical music. The choir sings movements from Handel and Mendelssohn oratorios as part of the worship services. The organist is just as likely to do a Bach, Toccata, and Fugue as the prelude music as anything else. And we even have a stained glass window of Bach in our sanctuary. Um actually, I was embarrassingly old before I figured out that Bach actually wasn't in the Bible, um, because there he was, mixed among all the other characters. But um, I started playing the music of Bach as part of worship when I was four years old. And it's really in church that um, sort of the meaning of being a musician um, was what I learned, you know, that it's you know not about being up on stage and being celebrated and things like that, but it's it's about being of service um, to your fellow humans you know, that music uplifts the spirit and nurtures the soul, and that the music comes from somewhere else, and that we, the performers, are conduits so that we can share this beautiful music with everybody who's listening and get them caught up in the experience. And so it's so much more than, you know, a a diversion or another form of entertainment, but it's something so much deeper that really has um, even healing powers. And so I was very serious about being a violinist. I, of course, had at that young age, no concept of what a career in music looked like other than, you know, seeing Perlman or orchestras, you know, like the Chicago Symphony on television. Um, but, you know, I didn't know exactly what that meant.
1: Um, so your folks chose this church. Do you have any idea how that all happened? Why you wind up, were going to this church?
0: Well, I know that my parents, um, after I was born, were looking for a progressive Christian congregation. Which, of course, the United Church of Christ denomination is the most liberal of the mainline Protestant um, denominations. And they are, were also definitely attracted to both the music ministry, all of the wonderful classical music being played in the worship service every morning, um, but also the community service element of my church. In fact, we have a, a slogan, making a joyful sound in the city, which is um, sort of a twofold meaning. Of course, the most literal meaning is about the joyful sounds of. Of the singing and the playing and the music making, but it also means that we are, um, you know, bringing our um, time, talent, and treasure, you know, to those who need it most in our community.
1: I was talking to a, a cellist just just before this, and uh, his father was a minister at a Presbyterian church, and uh, his father's father was a minister too. And uh, we got to talking about the church building itself. And its acoustic qualities, and so this church you went to, uh, does it have yeah. a remarkable acoustic qualities?
0: Yes. In fact, um, St. Paul's has such a beautiful sound that I just recorded my new album, the Bach Six Sonatas and Partidas, which is being released in March of 2016, next month. Um, I recorded that in my church with a single pair of microphones and absolutely no Post production, the sound is what you hear, and that, oh, of course, true. is the sound for Bach that I grew up with. Um, and it's, it turns out that it's a perfect sound. Um, Steve Epstein, the multiple Grammy award-winning producer who worked with me on the album, um, you know, we thought, well, you know, it'd be good to do Bach in a reverberant environment, and might as well do it at my church than some other place. But then he heard my church's acoustic, and he said, "This is so beautiful." We're just going to leave it, which is very unusual. You know, usually, they tweak a little something. You know, have mics surrounding, or they have, you know, maybe a little re- reverb added after the fact, or you know, something to just you know boost the sound just a little, cushion it. You know, do something to make it even more beautiful. But this sound was already so beautiful. We just said we're not going to touch it. So that was that was really cool. I mean, just you know, very sort of happen chance that I got to grow up making music in a church with such a beautiful acoustic and. Um, yeah, right. it
1: was now, now that brings up this idea which of course I'm always fascinated with and again you don't know me so but uh destiny uh providence all these ideas um I don't know if I'd go so far as to talk about reincarnation but you were at such a young age you're in this church well you know and you, you have this passion where's it come from yeah. Well, you know what?
0: My least favorite question of all interview questions is, um, what would you be if you weren't a violinist? Because to me, it's not just, you know, a profession or something I do to earn a living or something I do for fun. You know, it's the central to to who I am as a person, it's my calling, it's my identity. And that would almost be like saying, if you weren't you, who would you be? And that's a question that is simply not possible to answer. That's a, It's nonsense. And so saying, what would you be if you weren't a violinist? Well, I am a violinist. So that's that, you know what I mean? Um, and I'm so lucky to have found what I love so early. And also, you know, the fact that I can earn a living at it is just a super bonus. But um, yeah, I became, I I soloed with an orchestra for the first time when I was seven years old, um, making my debut with a professional ensemble called the Chicago String Ensemble, um, which no longer exists, but it um, was a very vital group in Chicago for many years. And shortly thereafter, when I was eight years old in the third grade, my school principal took my mother aside and said that he thought that I should stop going to school, which was a really, I mean, it would be a radical thing for any principal to do ever. But, you know, back in the early 80s when homeschooling was not nearly as widespread and as socially acceptable, you know, that was an extremely radical thing to do. And I'm just really so grateful for his, his insight that, you know, it would be in my best interest um, to start doing my academic work at home.
1: One of my favorite authors is James Hillman. And he wrote a book called The Soul's Code, which I think is a, a brilliant. And what he looked at is exceptional people that we know, uh, hmm. and uh, and then like Judy Garland, and then he would look into their early childhood, and this and he's really looking at it between five or birth and five in that age, and he would see things that happened in their lives that he called the acorn. It was already showing that this person was going to do this destiny. They were going to be a violinist. That was already decided. And he, he, I guess, questioned the idea that we come into life just as a, you know, white piece of paper and that either environment or genes decide what we're going to be. He, he posited a third influence. And it's it's an interesting idea. And you see yeah. this with certain people. You just say, "My God, they were always going to be that."
0: Well, I have trouble with the idea of predestination because then that, you know you start to get into you know these fuzzy areas of, you know, How does that play in with free will and so on and so forth? Um, But nonetheless, you know, I do think that there was some kind of a divine hand perhaps at play because, well, let's put it this way. I met my violin at church and then I met my husband at church. So church did pretty well by me. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And so when you— when you were going to homeschool, could you talk a little bit about what that meant for the family? I mean, the financial yeah. situations here.
0: Well, this was the trouble because, you know, um, it, there was actually a recent re- New York Times book called Far From the Tree. Um, I'm blanking on the author, but each chapter deals with a different kind of um, child that is so um, divergent from the parents own lived experience and from their expectations that it's almost like you have to parent this this alien, you know, one of them might be autistic, another one is children who are criminals. Deafness, etc. And one of the ch- chapters is prodigies and not just, you know, math or science, but they specifically focus on musical prodigies. It's funny because I personally know almost everybody in the chapter. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm going along, yeah, well, that one's pretty weird. And well, that one's actually well adjusted. Why is he in the chapter? Um, <laughs> but in any case, I'm just glad I didn't end up in there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, somebody with an extraordinary gift um, can be considered a special needs child. And in a way, that that's absolutely true because the parent, if they're going to, in fact, do what the child needs to thrive, has to make extraordinary sacrifices that are far beyond the norm of, you know, regular parenting. And so my mom, you know, had a choice to make. And thankfully, she chose to support my dreams and my talent um, and, you know, believed that she was also contributing to you know, doing good work in the world, and as you know, she believes God's work in the world. Um, you know, through my gift, and you know that that was maybe her destiny, but it certainly was one that she had angst about because you know she had her own talents and had planned to go back to work when my younger sister and I were a certain age. Especially because my father was rarely able to hold down a job throughout most of my childhood; um, he was frequently unemployed or underemployed, and so you know we were always getting our electricity or phone cut off or some weeks we didn't even know how we were going to pay for groceries and put gas in the tank of the car to drive to lessons. Um, We were always one missed payment away from losing the roof over our heads and uh, somebody from the extended family or the church or someone would step in and help us out at the last minute, but it was a very tenuous existence. Um, We didn't have heat in half of our house for years, and when I was practicing the violin, I had one little space heater and some crates that we had found in the alley, and I would rotate so that I would, you know, sort of thaw one section and warm up another um, as I went along, switching it up every 10 minutes between having the space heater on the floor, one crate, two crates, and three crates, so my one quarter of my body was, was warming up as the next one was chilling. <laughs> and I would sort of circle it like that. And for hours as I was practicing, it was, you know, pretty crazy. And, you know, just getting your concert clothes at thrift stores and trying to make it work. But, you know, it's in a way, it seems um, almost illogical to have this belief that how can you be meant to, you know, have this life that involves certain expenses. I mean, I I, of course, had scholarships for my lessons and was lucky enough to be receiving borrowed instruments. But, you know, you have to pay for your piano accompanist. You have to pay for um, your sheet music, for the next piece you're supposed to learn, for airfare to competitions, audition recording sessions, for strings for your instrument and hair for your bow. I mean, the expenses that a family has to pay out of pocket are not insignificant at all. And, you know, to believe that this is what I was meant to do when all reason is telling us that that's a crazy idea, you know, that's sort of the illogical part of faith, I suppose. And um, ironically, being homeschooled made my childhood more normal because... I could spread my academic work out over 365 days a year, so I never had like a big, long two-month vacation, but I never had more than two hours in any given day where I had to do schoolwork. So then I could do my practicing during school hours, and for the first time since kindergarten, I had my afternoons free to actually hang out with kids and, you know, socialize and, and, you know, have a normal life. And then I would, of course, go off to my rehearsals in the evenings or my performances. So that was kind of how I lived, and it was brilliant in high school, of course, because uh, I never had to worry about, you know, final exams interfering with an important competition because, you know, those sorts of conflicts just simply didn't exist. Um, I'll tell you a great little anecdote. Um, in those days, homeschooling was so non-socially acceptable that a lot of homeschoolers were almost what you might call in the closet. Um, we even, when we would be over at the library, um you know, getting books in the middle of the day, you'd think that a kid in a library getting books, that people wouldn't worry about that kid. But there would be total strangers who would come over and say, why aren't you in school, young lady, or start lecturing my mom on how homeschooling was going to stunt my development. Um, and people felt that they had the right to do so because it was such a, a, you know, strange thing to do that people wanted to throw in their two cents. Now, of course, at the same local library, they have homeschooling Wednesdays and all the homeschoolers from the neighborhood gather. The Culture has shifted so much in my violin studio. I, I was the one homeschooler, now half the studio homeschools. But in any case,
1: um, there's, uh, I think yeah, so. you know, Alvin Toffler, who wrote Future Shock many years ago, talked about the uh, second wave, I think is how he put it, second wave and third wave of s- societies. The second wave was, well, first wave was we tended to live and work at home. Uh, somebody might have a farm or they might have a shop. Uh, and downstairs, they might fix shoes, and they lived upstairs. So you didn't commute to work, and your kids didn't tend to go anyplace for Well, see, now that's education. why
0: homeschooling is not the right term. And now my daughter who tours with me, I call it road schooling. Um, but, you know, the last thing we did was stay at home. In fact, not going to traditional school, actually – opened up my life to be able to go out to, you know, museums and all the things that the city had to offer more often than if I was in the classroom every day. And of course, to be able to go and do my concerts in other states and go off to my contests in Europe by myself when I was a teenager. And so homeschooling, let me leave home more often, (laughs) to tell you the truth, um, literally. Um, But yeah, so we were one of the only families at the time who was willing to sort of go on record and be interviewed um, about this, because obviously, I couldn't hide the fact of my lifestyle, um, because I was out there as a public performer as a child. So we were on this one TV show one time, and the host decided to be very sort of melodramatic and sensationalistic. And so she said to me, how do you feel when you wake up every morning and you look out your window and all the other kids on your block are walking off to school and you're staying home? And I said, well, what are you talking about? I don't ever have to wake up that early. (laughs) So it was awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, just to finish on Toffler, the third wave, the second wave is you teach people to go to a place, which is called school, but it's also teaching them they're going to go to a factory and work. And there's going to be bells and times that they. So you're conditioning an education around a pattern of how you're going to live, supposedly, in the world to make a living when you're an adult. And that world has changed, too. Mm -hmm. So now suddenly people are saying, well, wait a second, this model of the school you go to and you stay there for six hours or whatever it is and there's bells that tell you to change classes, that this doesn't reflect the economy that's evolving very quickly now and that this flexibility – of course, the whole world of music is its own world and it has economic aspects to it and it has – Certainly, cultural aspects, and you've been yeah. really in well, the forefront actually, of these changes. I think.
0: Well, actually, homeschooling had unexpected benefits for me as a musician. Um, on you know the surface level, it was the expedient thing to do when I was a youngster because I needed to practice multiple hours a day to improve and learn as much as I wanted to. Um, to you know to literally just practice my instrument enough. I built up my practice hours till by the time I was eleven years old. Um, I was doing eight hours a day of personal practice, not including lessons and rehearsals and coachings and, con- and you know, performances. Uh, of course, that's not necessary to get good, um, you know, and some people say you shouldn't practice more than six, but I didn't practice extra on any one piece. I just learned more pieces simultaneously to expedite my education. I completed my formal education when I was 17 so that I could be fully professional at that point, which was also motivated by um, the desire to help support my family in my father's absence. So that's a whole other part of the story. But in any case, I was doing these eight hours a day, which is no different than, you kids who are training for the Olympics or whatever else. So the homeschooling, um, you know, sort of facilitated that. But what I didn't um, know, what none of us could have guessed is that the the way I learned changed when I started homeschooling. I wasn't just doing the same math and the same science and the same literature and the, the same subjects I would have been doing in, at school, except I was conveniently doing them not in school. But in fact, I would learn in a different pattern. If I was interested in a particular topic, I would drop all my other topics for the month and go as deep as I wanted and just binge. I did all my (laughs) high school math the summer before freshman year, and then I didn't touch math again for three years. And that type of immersion learning, which homeschooling allows, uh, is something that I started to apply to my music making. I would, you know, more than my other classmates, you know, who were practicing and studying and that was that, I would have the luck of time to be able to go to the library and read biographies about the composer and then read biographies about the dedicatee of that work and then read about the time and place, the culture of that particular country and era where the work was written and how music was made back then. And then the footnotes in those books would lead me to certain Dissertations, and then the footnotes in those dissertations would lead me to other articles, and I would just go crazy with it and started doing historically informed Baroque music when I was only 14, um, when that was quite an unusual thing to do. And, you know, just being able to, you know, go and consult with conductors or with composers or, you know, just do all these things, which I've never stopped doing actually. And so my wide ranging musical interests were a direct result of the homeschooling education that I was lucky enough to have.
1: So did you binge at some point on the violin itself as an instrument, the making of it, the history of it?
0: Absolutely not. I have to say, um, <laughs> I am a performer who looks at a scroll and goes, "That looks like a scroll," and looks like an f-hole and goes, "That looks like an f-hole." I can't be like, "Ooh, see that cut? That means it's del jesu." I'm just like, oh, it "Looks like a violin. It's kind of brown." <laughs> as long as it goes with my hair, that's important. But other than that, um, no. I mean, I love the sound, um, but you know, I'm not a visual person. Uh, when we're when we're tweaking my album cover. Is every time I make a CD, it's my husband who says, what if the font were just, you know, a little tiny bit larger and moved over to the left? And I'm like, why are you being so picky? It looks fine. And then we implement his suggestions and I can see that it looks a lot better, but I would have been happy the first time around and would have never thought of those things. So yeah, the... Um sort of the craftsmanship, I respect all of that stuff tremendously. um, And I enjoy learning about some of it through my husband, because he serves on the board of trustees of the Chicago School of Violin Making. Um, So it's been fun to be involved with CSVM, and to go over there and meet um, the youngsters who are learning the art of violin making, and to play for them and talk to them and try their instruments. And um, that's been pretty cool. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I look at these books of you know the tips of bows by Twirt and Picat, and I'm like, this is boring. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking almost more of the stories about you know did uh, did Guarneri go to jail, and oh, how yeah. different was his personality than let's say a Stradivari who was was much more mainstream, was much more yeah. the established kind of character, and then Guaneri del Jesu particularly. Would just suddenly uh, make these things weren't they weren't exactly uh, symmetrical, but they yeah, have well, some kind of soul to them. It seems
0: actually. I mean, as someone who grew up in a working class neighborhood, I actually love the fact that Guinari made instruments for the working musician that he didn't care nearly as much about whether the scroll was perfectly elegantly carved and exactly symmetrical. It's like, okay, it's a scroll, but we want this instrument to sound great, Um, you know, which is sort of my attitude as opposed to Stradivari, who I, of course, love, but, you know, he made, you know, gorgeous aesthetic instruments for the aristocracy as much as he made living voices. And that's a whole different sort of approach. And... Yeah, so I feel like, yeah, definitely, I'm more drawn to the Guarneri sound, but I also think Guarneri definitely fits um, where I come from. And yeah, so I'm, I'm so lucky to have the use of this particular instrument that I play.
1: In 2013, Ms. Pine released a CD of Lullabies, accompanied by Matthew Hegel on the piano. In a personal note, she wrote My first exposure to music was not at a concert, it was not on the radio. It was the sound of my mother's voice as she sang a lullaby to me just as her mother had sung to her and her mother before her the sweet tone of my mother's voice and her perfect intonation lulled me to sleep or as I got older kept me awake so as not to miss a note here is part 1 of those bewitching lullabies by the composer Gabriel Fauré <laughs> Let's talk about your violin a little bit.
0: Yeah, well, let me actually back up um, to just talk to you about my um, sort of series of relationships with, with violins. That'd be great. Um, so basically, when I reached age 14 and was big enough for a full-size instrument, I guess, no, I, I take it back. I guess I was, um, excuse me, I guess I was big enough for a full-size instrument from the time I was 11. Um, but yeah, basically, um You know, I was using a modern instrument and the modern instrument was, you know, it had enough interesting variety of sound that it was allowing me to practice effectively, you know, to explore, to, you know, to support. My vision as I was doing my daily practice, but it simply did not have the beauty of sound nor the projection. I, I hate to use the word volume because that's really not about loudness. It's about how far does that volume carry. So the projection, it just wasn't there. So every time I had an important performance or competition I would borrow an instrument but it was these short-term loans from violin shops and so you know they're in the business of selling instruments they can't loan it to me for a few weeks till I can really get to know it in depth and make friends with it and you know they'd be loaning it to me for a few days and you know every it's now pianists go around and they have to play a different piano everywhere they go because they can't put you know their instrument in their back pocket Uh, so but but pianos are um, proportionately you know they're they're all the same. Violins are, you know, ever so slightly different and you know, the fact that it's so minute makes it that much harder. So literally just making sure that your notes are in tune on the different string. And then with the bright arm, you know, making sure that you understand the curve of the bridge because you know these are living pieces of wood. They settle over the centuries or even as they're being carved, the different personalities of the maker or even just what that piece of wood wants to become. You know, there's slight variations in the shape of each instrument. And so um, you know, very 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 subtle, but just where are the strings? So there's that very basic level of making sure I'm going to be on the right string at the right time with the right pitch. But then to get to know what is the voice of this violin, where are its colors, where is its beauty for the different emotions that I'm trying to express with the music I'm about to play on it, and having to do all of that in just a few days is, I can't even begin to describe how stressful it is, but I've always been a glass half full person, and as, you know... As unlucky as I was um, compared to classmates whose parents were well off and had bought them a a good instrument that they could use for their concerts, and that that was their daily instrument, and they knew that instrument intimately and could just go out and perform on it anytime they chose, you know, I had a lot more struggle than that. But on the other hand, it was an opportunity uh, to get to know the voices of uh, just a large variety of instruments that I would have never encountered, because why would I have bothered if I hadn't had that circumstance. So it was an incredible learning opportunity. I felt like, you know, there's the instrument sound, but there's also your sound. And, you know, a good violinist, they can pick up, you know, a matchbox and it still sounds like them. You bring your own sound to anything you play. And as I was young and developing my sound and my voice, hearing and trying all of these instruments and having these little flings with so many, um, I would learn things about who I am every time. And the way I sounded on my modern instrument would change every time I came back to it. And I also learned what my taste was and discovered that I really preferred the less soprano, more alto types of violins, the darker, deeper, rich, powerful, you know, basically the Guarneri sound as opposed to the Stradivari sound. Stradivari's are seductive. It's like when I have a great glass of white wine, I think to myself— gosh I, this is so enjoyable why don't I drink white wine more often and then I have a great glass of red wine and I'm like oh yeah <laughs> and it's the same with the violins I love the quinary sound so anyway after I became the first American to win the gold medal at the Jasbach international competition in Leipzig Germany when I was 17 um, I guess that um, credential uh, inspired a generous patron to offer me a long-term loan of a beautiful 1617. Uh, modernized, of course, um, Brother Zamati violin, which had once belonged to the family of the Princes Lobkowitz and actually bore their wax seal on the back of its neck. And I played that instrument for about eight years, and it was with me through my first recordings, through many of my important debuts. I always thought to myself... You know, this instrument is my good friend and, you know, and and longtime companion. I'm going to be heartbroken if we ever have to part. That being said, I did have a wandering eye. I was always very interested to p- try people's strads and guanaries and things. Um, so it wasn't like I thought my Amanti was the ultimate, but it was something that really fit me, and we had a lot of experiences together.
1: And on that spectrum, was it more towards the, the darker? Oh, absolutely. Earthier?
0: Yeah, and Sound. actually being so early, 1617, it would have been made as a pre-baroque instrument uh, as part of a Renaissance band violin consort, uh, where they would take the same tree and make the instruments of the different sizes that were supposed to blend together. And so this obviously was a second violin, the fact that it was bigger and darker, uh, which worked perfectly you know, with the modern neck and the, the heavy gauge strings to be able to be a concerto instrument. Uh, so that's kind of ironic, um, second violin in a very different sense than we think of it um, today. In fact, the what would have been the first violin um, in that same consort, if it still survives is probably more of a chamber music instrument and not a concerto instrument because it would have been smaller and more soprano-y and lighter. Um, in any case, um, in the year 2000, I was playing um, down south, and after the concert, um, a fan came up and said, would you... By any chance, be interested in um, playing my Stradivarius? I've I've got a Stradivarius under my bed, and I'd love to loan it to you. And I was like, oh, the old Stradivarius <laughs> under the bed story. <laughs> 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 now, literally, he had bought Made this Germany instrument. Germany. Yeah, he, no, he had <laughs> bought it. Really, was a Stradivarius. Oh, um, okay. He had bought it as an investment. Um, it had been loaned to a wonderful player for many years, who was no longer using it, and it was living under his bed, and um, so I was very excited because I knew that would be an upgrade, um, but then I tried it And it didn't sound that good. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how can I tell this gentleman, this generous person, that I'm going to reject his Stradivari? But luckily, my husband said to me, you know, you really should give it a chance. You know, maybe it just needs to open out. I mean, think about it. If you didn't talk for 10 years, your voice would sound probably a little croaky. So, you know, I played it and it started to vibrate. I got a tonal adjustment, which is where the luthier, the violin shop, you know, specialist for the high end instruments, you know, they sort of tweak the placement of the the feet of the bridge, as where they sit on the instrument, and the little vibrating stick inside that goes under the bridge, um, which is called the sound post. So they, you know, tweak those by by fractions of a millimeter to find exactly the right positioning to optimize the sound of the instrument. So I played it and tweaked it and played it and tweaked it over a few days, and then it started to sound glorious. And it was amazing how unsentimental I became about my poor old Amati. I gave it back to its owner, and it was just like, okay, see ya. Thanks for the memories. Bye. <laughs> and, you know, I did not miss it. I had a a, a wonderful new partner, and so this Stradivari was, was so great. It just, I guess the best way to describe it is, you know, when you go up in terms of the quality of instruments, it's not that the colors are more beautiful per- necessarily, but it's sometimes that there are more of them. Especially when you're talking about modern instruments, they can have, they can sound absolutely gorgeous, but you don't have as many options. It's like painting with hundreds of colors instead of every possible Pantone, you know, hundreds of thousands of gradations. Um, so this Stradivari was was wonderful, and then I got the offer of a Guarneri, a 1744 instrument um, that belonged um, to a man who was, he was a Swiss businessman who made a lot of his money on organic coffee plantations in Brazil, um, and the, his instruments were being overseen and maintained by a luthier in Amsterdam. So I had to fly to Amsterdam, try this instrument. I brought the Stradivari with me because I, first of all, wanted to make sure if I was going to accept the offer of the Guinary that it really was um, better than the the. Stradivari better, or also, you know, whether it fit me better, because it's such a personal thing. Um, and also, I needed to practice for my next concert, which would probably still be on the Strad. So I brought the Strad with me, and it was such a funny Um, experience at customs. This was in 2001. They wanted me to prove that I wasn't going to sell the Stradivari while I was in their country. And I said, well, how can I prove that I'm not going to do something? So finally, they took pictures of it, and they wanted to make sure that I was exiting the country with the same violin. So they would, the idea was that they would then compare those pictures to the violin when I departed. But the pictures that they ended up comparing were a black and white fax um, and so was this fax of a photo that looked entirely fuzzy all you could tell is that it was a violin <laughs> and they were like okay go on through um, but in any case the Guinary was was beautiful um, it also had a little stamp on the back of its neck um, it was known as the ex-lord coke which was the aristocratic family that at some point or another I don't think that it was necessarily made for them but at some point or another they had owned that instrument and then just just a year later, um, I had assumed that that Guinary was going to be my instrument for many, many years. Um, that was the expectation because there are so few Guinary del Jesús in the world, fewer than a tenth as many as there are Stradivarius. And if your taste lies in the, that direction, you're lucky to get one at all. There are so few to go around. And the fact that I had one, I certainly didn't expect you know, to encounter another one or be offered the use of another Guinary or prefer another Guinary to this Guinary or anything else. But in 2002, uh, I was about to record the Brahms Violin Concerto with my own hometown, Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And um, the same person who had once loaned me the Stradivari uh, said that he knew somebody who owned a guinary that had a connection to Brahms. And I said, well, that sounds pretty intriguing. Uh, maybe that would be nice to use just for this album if the fellow who's loaning me the other guinary isn't going to be offended if I don't use his for the recording. And so it all was fine, and I... I met this instrument, which had actually been personally chosen by Brahms for one of his protégés, Mary Soldat, um, who was one of the first champions of the Brahms Violin Concerto. So this instrument, um, known as the Ex Soldat in honor of her, actually known doubly as the Ex Bazzini Ex Soldat, also in honor of a violinist who had played it in the early part of the 19th century, Antonio Bazzini, one of the great Italian virtuosos. So this was a 1742 Guarneri, um same year as the one that Paganini played, by the the way. The canon. The canon, and very much bearing some of the same tonal characteristics. It was an absolute powerhouse, but so rich and just so, I mean, there are no superlatives. It blew away the other guanary, which is really saying something because that guanary is extraordinary. But this one, everybody who hears it, um, or every luthier that looks at it, says it's probably one of the dozen best violins in the whole world. And um, I fell in love with it. Did you know
1: when you picked it up within a few moments? Yes,
0: yes, absolutely. Unlike the Stradivari. um, Yeah, I mean, it was the Exolat Guarneri. It was like everything I'd ever been dreaming of. And uh, it was like, you know, finding my soulmate. And I didn't want to give it back. It was supposed to be just a short-term loan for that recording project, and luckily the owner liked me and agreed to let me keep using it and recently awarded it to me for lifetime use, which is a wonderful feeling of security, especially these days when, I mean... You never know what's going to happen. So often these instruments are owned by people who have bought them as investments to simply diversify their portfolio. And it's not entirely altruistic only if they loan them to artists, because in fact, it is healthier for the instruments to be played. Also, if the instruments are out there in the world, doing prestigious concerts, being recorded on, having their history added to, it increases their so-called provenance, which actually does increase their value. So it's in the owner's own best interest to have the instruments on loan, um, not least of which because the pay- the, the recipient <laughs> has to pay the for the insurance. So that's a little bit of a cost savings too. So there, everybody benefits all the way around. In other countries, very often those countries' governments or corporations or banks will own instruments in the and patriotically loan them to some of the best representatives of that country here in America. Of course, we don't have any such system um, since we're more of a capitalist society, but it is the individuals who own the instruments. But you never know. Poor Frank Peter Zimmermann, you know, the bank that was loaning him an instrument collapsed. There have certainly been stories of, you know, a couple getting divorced and the instrument has to be taken back and liquidated. You never know what's going to happen. And so I'm very lucky to have the security of knowing that I'll be playing on mine for the remainder of my career. And I would be remiss if I did not also mention that I have a foundation, the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation, that supports young artists in various ways through financial assistance, etc. Um, But we also have an instrument loan program, which loans instruments that both belong to third parties and have also been given to our permanent collection, by musicians who have retired or makers or families who give it in their loved one's honor. um, If they've inherited the instrument, we get instruments in a variety of ways about half of our collection is owned by us and half is loaned through us. And we've supported more than 70 young artists up to this point um, with not only the instruments, but also the bows because so often, and I'd love to talk about this in a minute, but the bows are such an important piece of the puzzle. Um, But recently we received the gift to our permanent collection of, a gorgeous 1732 Stradivari um the rate Lady Rebecca Sylvan and um we are at the moment um working on identifying its first recipient but it's amazing to know that this instrument is going to belong to my charitable foundation into perpetuity and will be loaned um to um wonderful performers for as long as the world exists
1: I love that Uh, We were over in Cremona and visiting the um, violin museum there. And I think one of the um, issues that people in this world are faced with, with this investment Mechanism in place where people are buying these violins because I guess violin is the the one uh, investment people haven't lost money on or something. There's- it's
0: not very liquid, but you're never going to, to see your your investment you know go down in value. That's for sure.
1: Exactly. But as they keep driving, as those costs keep going up, those prices, the insurance rates continue to go up. So then, when you do have people, even foundations or museums. Now they're looking at some pretty – Well, I
0: always joke that I could buy a good modern-made violin every year for what I pay in insurance on the darn Guarneri, but it's totally worth it, you know. But, yeah, that's just how it is. It's unfortunate that these um, instruments – which are living meant to be living voices have become objects of art, because it used to be that you could aspire that if you reached the heights of your profession and you know career success, so to speak, with the attendant financial re- remuneration, um, you know that you could anticipate you know and inspire um, bleh, sorry we'll um, have the that means. you could anticipate you know and aspire to own your own instrument um, of a quality that you needed to be able to continue to pursue your career and now it's just an absolute impossibility no matter how successful you are you know earning top dollar as one of the most famous soloists you you can't go and buy a Stradivari It's just you can't so
1: we interviewed Elmar Alavarra and he tells a wonderful story that happened some years ago, but couldn't happen today, he said. And that's where he wanted to buy a Stradivari violin at auction and had told the uh, man, the the agent that he had, that he could only pay up to this much, but uh, he would love to see if he could buy it. And when it came up for auction, this fellow had gone around and talked to all these uh, violin dealers who were very, you know, top of their field at that time. And they were there at this auction and nobody bid against him because the word went around that Elmer wanted to buy this. And and he said, you know, he was really touched by that. He said, but then again, that's a day that's gone.
0: Absolutely. Well, even bows, the prices have risen so much. Um, you know, for a good French bow, you're paying, you know, between one hundred and $250,000. We'll talk um, about the bow. And, How yeah.
1: much of a difference can you feel if it's a really good bow?
0: It's, you know, it's interesting. So you, ta- you mentioned the word feel. So inst- violins ergonomically, most violinists can comfortably play most violins. Not every violin is going to be the preferred sound that a particular violinist wants, but they can physically play most violins comfortably. Bows are a totally different story. What feels great in one person's hand can feel completely awkward and clunky in the next person's hand. So you actually have to make a three-way match. It has to feel good in your hand, but it also has to be a match for your instrument tonally. The bows don't create sound or have sound, but they draw the sound out of different violins in different ways. And actually going through with the Strad and then the 44 del Gesu and then the 42 del Gesu, every time I switched fiddles, I had to buy a different bow because um, the one that was a great tonal match for... uh, the instrument I'd just been playing was not for that new instrument I was now playing. And so that was quite the process. And to find a great bow for my current Del Jesu because it happens to be so incredibly powerful, most bows, even wonderful, just fantastic sticks by famous makers, don't draw out the last bits of depth of sound. It took me a long time to find a bow that was really the right bow for it and that felt good in my hand. And I always joke that I had to date far fewer guys to find my husband and the number of bows I had to try to find my (laughs) picat and it's absolutely true
1: (laughs) do people ever uh, I wonder if people ever really like find the bow tonally like you said there's a feel though for the for the fiddler themselves but I wonder if people ever sell the violin and bow together because they they basically have said, I, we found the right match, and you, you should know, buy them together. You that can't work
0: because the next player, even right. if they're the a personality match for the voice of that violin, again, ergonomically, that bow might not feel comfortable to them. So it really can't go that way, unfortunately, and everybody has to go back on the hunt. But what's unfortunate is that a lot of the people who own these instruments as investments don't realize the importance of the bow, or if they do, they don't care to own them. Bows are also also a good investment, but maybe they're not as glamorous, or maybe people just don't know about it. So um, when I was first borrowing the Amati violin, the 1617 Brothers Amati, starting when I was 17 years old, you know, because of my family's financial circumstances, you know, I was helping out with the you know, the weekly bills and struggling to get by and certainly didn't have any money left over to buy a decent bow. I had a bow that that handled well, you know, it was clean, it was smooth, it could do all the the bouncy tricks that I needed, but it did not have a great sound. Um, It was serviceable, it wasn't special. um, And it only cost a few thousand dollars. Um, I had a teaching studio at the time because my um, concert dates were not, you know, every single week yet, as I was starting out. And my students would come in with their. By the way, at this point in time, the Amati was a half million dollar violin, so a five hundred thousand dollar violin that I was playing with a maybe a two or three thousand dollar bow. My students would come to their lessons with their fifty thousand dollar violins and their ten thousand dollar bows, and I would pick up one of their bows. And draw it across the strings of the Amati and the, the Amati would sound twice as good, more complex, louder, everything just so much better night and day. And I would think, oh, my gosh, for lack of an extra $8,000, the owner of this $500,000 violin, it's only sounding like half of what it could. And that just doesn't even make logical sense, but there was nothing I could do about it for many years. And so that was kind of tragic, actually. Um, And at the time, there was no Rachel Barton Pine Foundation for me to go to borrow a bow. One of the things that's given me great joy with my foundation is that we have various bows that we very often loan to young artists who are already borrowing a violin, but not a bow. And so that's great. Um, and that, it's the missing that, piece of the puzzle, really.
1: Yeah, that's the advantage of you having the foundation, quite honestly, as you're a player. You understand these things.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. And um, actually, when you look at all the, at least here in America with the different instrument loan programs, um, ours is the only one run by an actual recipient slash concert violinist. And so we really do Um, While we definitely honor our generous donors and um, lenders um, and do everything we can to, you know, um, provide command performances for them and and all of those benefits, um, but we really are also very much on the side of the young artists and have a a real understanding as far as what they're going through. So when we ask them to give a command performance, you know, for example, we pay for the airfare and the um, piano accompanist because we don't expect them to somehow be able to come, out, come up with that out of pocket and in the early stages of their career.
1: Thank you for listening to part one of my interview with violinist Rachel Barton Pine. In part two, Ms. Pine tells the story of what happened to her when she first played Fritz Kreisler's violin. She also talks about her efforts to bring the work of composers of African descent into the mainstream of classical music. Please join us for that conversation. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org.